good life for them. Until one day... There were 10,000 explosions, and the world shook, and red fire and ashes and radioactivity fell from the sky. The happy time was over. The happy time is over? <laughs> not on Bill Fields' watch, it isn't. And not on the Comic Book Historian Podcast. Welcome, Space Cadets! Woo! Yes, today we're traveling back in time once more to 1953. Try not to disturb anything. We want to avoid the sound of thunder. No, I'm not talking about Thor. I'm talking about the Ray Bradbury time-traveling short story, one of many that EC adopted and adapted during its weird science fantasy run. Our first topic today is the history of EC's science fiction and fantasy books. What were they? How'd they come to be? Where'd they go? Next, we're digging into the books themselves, sharing our all-time favorite stories and artists. And thirdly, we'll see what else is happening at home and abroad in 1953, the world of science fiction. And when I say we... I mean myself, Bill, pain in the asteroid field, and my two comrades in comics. That would be Alex Graviton Grand. Hey, Alex, how are you doing, buddy? Hey, Billy Boy, what's going on? I am going on, and I'll tell you more. And of course, we have Jim Jumpin' Jupiter Thompson. Jimmy, how are you, buddy? I'm good, Bill. Ah, you sound good, man. You sound good. So, fellas, what's going on? Let's see. I just got through a stack of 70s comic magazines, which which were a lot of fun. What do you guys think of the 1970s comic magazines with fanzines and magazines? What do you guys think of that? The Curtis stuff, like the Marvel horror things, or do you mean... Yeah, so that's once you got Curtis magazines, you got just fanzines in general. Then you got prozines of the time. Comic Reader. Also known as the Monomi Falls Gazette, right? Was that it, Jim? Yeah, Bill, that was it. Thank you. Thank you. Jim, <laughs> Jim, Jim is my Google while we're on here. Jim Google Thompson. I'm changing his nickname yet again. But that's also the time that Steranko came out with Comic Scene and Media Scene and History of Comics. So there's just this huge upsurge of enjoyment of comics history at that time. And it just shows in the kind of magazines that were available. So I, I'm just having a great time looking through those things. You had Kung Fu, you had Apes, and you had the Hulk. I mean, what more could anyone want? Well, wait, I, I love those Walt Simonson Hulks, the Rampaging Hulks. Those were fantastic. Wonderful? Oh, my yeah. gosh. You know what's so funny is I thought, wow, they're taking this all the way back to 1962. But that was in 1978. So that was like only 16 years away. But now... It's it just seems so funny that I thought that that shorter time was so far back when it really wasn't. But those were wonderful. Bill, wasn't your favorite scene from those rampaging hawks that gym no. shooter YMCA rape scene? Don't go there. I knew you were going to go to the bathroom stalls with this one, Alex. And I'm going to have to go to Jim. Jim, what have you been up to? OK, so I've seen Black Panther three times now. 
I finished up my 365 horses this past week. Going out with like 100 photos of Sam Savitt covers, that was a real treat and a real pain. And then Friday, on a non-comics thing, I dropped off my five-year-old at the uh, my gym for a parent's night out. And this kid, I'm going to call him Renfield, he came up to me <laughs> and he said, are you the dad or are you the granddad? So... I just want to say, Renfield, if you're listening, I have a question for you, too. Is, is that is that your real mom or is that your new trophy mom? Oh, oh. boom. Right and in between. And I know that's mean to do it to a five-year-old, but, but am I the granddad? Wow. Now, just to make that clear for the listeners, Jim, how old are you exactly? <laughs> I didn't know we were going to do that. Can I just say I was wearing like a Star Wars shirt at the time? I, you know, <laughs> Willoughby and I run to gym class. It's it's not like, you know, I came in there, you know, with my cane. Um, besides <laughs> which, his dad doesn't look at Anyway. So now that kid's name is not really Renfield. Isn't that the name of like Dracula's assistant or something? Yeah, the it? one that eats bugs. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I don't appreciate you giving my nephew Ren a hard time. <laughs> yeah. Renfield is the good kid. You know, I knew I didn't like that kid. No, I would probably shoot that kid, damn it, if he was related to me. But Alex is just a dad, but he's not just a dad. He's an Alex grand dad. Oh, wow. That's a good point. I never thought of that. Okay. And me, I've been up to my usual mayhem and antics and refurbishing my house which is a nightmare in and of itself so oh, wow. i will wrap this up because i've i've been shown the bobblehead of doom by jim it's actually <laughs> a bobblehead of dr doom let's can, let's can we not let's call that the bobblehead of doom the bobblehead of doom i am victor bobblehead of doom welcome to my country latveria so now bill i'm curious what yeah. was that opening soundbite that we played well, Alex, I'm so glad you asked. That was from a 1950 radio show called Dimension X, where I reside. And that episode adapted two of Ray Bradbury's best short stories, Zero Hour and There Will Come Soft Rain. And both of those were adopted a couple years later by EC Comics. In fact, they were two of my favorite stories ever adopted from Bradbury's stories. See, Jim? Happy time isn't over. It isn't. I promise you. And while you're in a rare, you know, good mood. Great mood, Bill. Well, thank you. And Alex is in a grand mood. We'll All right. go there later. Can you tell us a little bit about the early history of science fiction before EC, Jim? Yes. Yes, I can. I'm going to give a little bit of a timeline for context. So Argosy becomes the very first pulp magazine in, in 1896. A year later, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds is serialized. Ten years after that, and this is the first comic book reference, the first science fiction comic premieres. It's a single-panel gag cartoon called Mr. Sky Gag from Mars, 1907, that was done for the Chicago Day Book. Skygak was a special Martian correspondent who always made wireless observations in his notebooks, sort of like gags like the Coneheads were in the 70s on Saturday Night Live. Oh, nice. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote A Princess of Mars in 1911, so just a few years later, and the first official science fiction pulp magazine, Amazing Stories, 
began in 1926. After Mr. Skyjack Goes from Mars, we get a serious version of science fiction in 1929, which is obviously Buck Rogers, based on a story that was done in Amazing Stories. From that, you then had others, including Flash Gordon in 1934. All of this together, but especially Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, inspired two kids growing up in Cleveland, Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel. And from there, we know what happens in 1938. Two years after Superman, in 1940, Fiction House becomes the first comic company to dedicate an entire book to science fiction. That would be Planet Comics. They took their title from another pulp magazine, Planet Stories, that had come along. The comic was all about heroic space adventurers fighting bug-eyed monsters and rescuing scantily clad females. So it's basically like all other science fiction that we think of of that period. But sometimes with these, the women were the adventurers. And that's no surprise because of all the women artists that were working at Fiction House, like nice. Lily Renee, Ruth Atkinson, Fran Hopper who was doing Mista of the Moon, which is fantastic. You also had such a good stock of male artists at the time there. Murphy Anderson, Matt Baker, Nick Carty, Graham Ingalls, and George Evans, both of which we, we talked about last week with the EC books. Covers were by, uh, either one of you, if you know how to pronounce this better than me, it's Dan Zonerowicz. Hmm. He and Joan Doolin was the other one. They were simply the best at that kind of good girl art that was being done at the time. And the books themselves were simple and they were fun. They did 73 issues total of Planet Stories starting in 1940 and ending in our year of the day, 1953. And that's it. Nice. Now, Ruth Atkinson, didn't she co-create Millie the Model? Oh, you know, my Millie the Model knowledge is really low. I have no idea. Sounds right. Yeah, I thought something like that happened. Jim, I'm speechless. I've never known when you couldn't talk on any aspect of comics. Yeah, yeah. I'm not calling you a slacker, but... Slacker! Sorry. I I went there. Now, EC got involved into the sci-fi fantasy genre in 1950. So, essentially, Julius Schwartz, editor and promoter of science fiction pulps from back in the day started editing Strange Adventures in 1950. And so national periodicals, where DC's getting into the game, and in that same year, Harry Harrison and Wally Wood talked to Bill Gaines about starting up some science fiction. And Bill Gaines loved the sci-fi pulps like Astounding Stories. So him and Al Fieldstein started editing Weird Science. And that continued its numbering from the Western romance book they did called Saddle Romances. And... Harrison, unfortunately, who had no editing role, left DC by the end of 1950. But Gaines and Feldstein continued on in their march to embrace science fiction. And the comic that they had, Moon Girl, which at that point became a romance comic, was then replaced with Weird Fantasy, again edited by Gaines and Feldstein with the same numbering. So these two books start coming out. And I don't know if you guys know much about Jim Steranko's view on EC Comics, but he felt that Gaines was a really unique publisher because he was willing to just experiment with genres and do new things to convert his dad's Bible comics into, okay, let's try Westerns, let's try this, okay, well then let's go for science fiction and let's get good artists. So this time when he starts making the new trend comics and making science fiction along with horror and crime, 
this is seen as a really interesting time as far as just creativity and growth of content in comics. You know, I really loved his science fiction Bible comics with Space Station Genesis 7. I'm kidding. Sorry. Continue. (laughs) Well, you know, you could have fooled me on that one because I would have just believed it. But Feldstein and Gaines combined a couple of Ray Bradbury stories whose fame was now building in the early 50s. And they combined it into one story. And what's funny is Ray Bradbury found out about it and praised them, but then said that he inadvertently didn't receive his payment check yet. Can I read the letter? Because I just love every word of it. Please do. Can you do it in a Ray Bradbury voice, though, Jim? I can because he sounds exactly like me, Bill. So this is going to be easy. Just (laughs) Just a note to remind you of an oversight. You have not as yet sent on the check for $50 to cover the use of secondary rights on my two stories, The Rocket Man and Kaleidoscope. I feel this was probably overlooked in the general confusion of office work and look forward to your payment in the near future. It was the nicest letter anybody's ever written saying, cut this out or whatever. And they sent the check immediately. And from there, Alex... Well, from there, they sent the check over to Ray Bradbury and then started to publicly credit him with the source of their stories. This was actually a fun tradition in comics even later on, because in the 70s, there were those Curtis magazines, which we were referring to. And there was a book called Unknown Worlds of Science Fiction. And in it, they have adapted comic book short stories by A.E. Van Vogt, who did some sci-fi books in the 70s it became a just a thing to do in sci-fi comics let's adapt some famous books and give that guy some street cred get people to buy the books and then people will buy our comics and that's cool that Gaines and feldstein caught onto that game and did a great job with it it actually became one of the signature things about their sci-fi comics was adapting ray bradbury stories although i i would say one thing alex I have read that it's uncertain whether or not Gaines was actually deliberately looking at Bradbury's stories and then writing writing based on that or having Feldstein write it based on that. That's one reason we opened with the radio show that we did, because those were all coming out around 1950, Mm -hmm. right when Feldstein would have been listening. So it may be that he heard these on the radio and from that, oh, that's a good idea. I remember that story. And he started Mm -hmm. doing it. And may not have even realized it was Bradbury, the first couple of them, until Bradbury actually gave him notice. Sure, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of these things are somewhat unconscious or accidental. It did become this fun little partnership. However, Jim, tell us about Weird Science and Weird Fantasy. Where did they go after a couple years? Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Okay, so in 1953, up until that point, they were going and, and doing what they were doing. 
Kurtzman is gone from these books as of 1951. I don't know if you mentioned that, Alex, but the first year and a half, Kurtzman is doing one story each book as well. Mm -hmm. And those just stand out to me. They're fantastic. Feldstein is also doing the art every issue. He stops an issue later on Weird Science after Kurtzman leaves. So there's this whole, and Feldstein's stories are fantastic because he puts himself in all of them. This goofy looking weird head is as one of the government agents, it turns out to be an alien or he's part of the Pentagon. He's the secretary of the defense. He's always in these stories and that's hilarious. But in 1952, it becomes Wallywood, Jack Kamen and newcomer Joe Orlando. But at the very end of 1952, and this is what stands out about 53, 21 year old Al Williamson joins and starts doing science fiction for them, taking one of Wally Wood's slots, because he was doing two stories at a time. This makes 1953 the real wonder year for for the EC science fiction books. It's kind of like when Lou Gehrig joined with Babe Ruth, or whatever, vice versa, or whatever happened, uh, like Kobe and Shaq. It's like suddenly these two major players, with Wood and with Williamson, both just hitting it out of the park. For the first time, Williamson brings romanticism to EC Comics, which before there was mainly cynicism and, and it was a little on the dark side. He brings out this more space opera heroic aspect to it on, on the books he's doing. He also brings along the rest of the Flegel gang, Frank Frazetta, Roy Crinkle and Angelo Torres. The bad news is none of this increases the sales on the books, not a dime. At the very end of 1953, into the beginning of 1954, both books are canceled and combined into one title, and the price is raised to 15 cents, and this is going to be the last year of the sci-fi books. Exactly. And what's interesting is Gaines even said that as the quality of the books went up, the sales went down. And in fact, this is part of Jim Stranko's admiration in it. Because Gaines was trying out all these different books, and a lot of it was losing money, but the horror books sold so well that they drove the profits of the entire line. The sci-fi books basically broke even, but it was really the horror books that made the money and was able to pay for all this. And then, of course, around 1953, the Mad Comics started to also gain some steam around this year, and that was a success. So... It was just a lot of experimentation and a couple successes, which makes this a really interesting time. And again, what Jim Stranko really feels was really fascinating about Gaines is, hey, he's going to try 15 things, take the risk, but then, hey, something does well, and he was able to enjoy that profit. So it's a cool year for that, 1953. Also, another thing about this year that's significant is that Fiction House, Planet Comics, that Jim mentioned, it ended in 1953. So that just kind of goes to show that sci-fi itself was just losing fans and the genre was starting to die off. Also, another thing about 53 was in Weird Science 20, they had the EC Fan Bulletin in the Bill Gaines letter page, which inspired the EC Fan Addict Club. And that still exists even on Facebook today. There's an EC Fan Addict Facebook Club. So it's just an interesting thing. Also, another thing that should be known is that 1953 is the first year that they would use Ray Bradbury's stuff, but they wouldn't mention him on the cover because Ray Bradbury himself didn't want his name associated with comic books. Their reputation was starting to go more and more bad around this time with 
Housewives and Frederick Wortham and all that, adding a lot of negative publicity. I just have have to ask you this, Jim. What do you get when you cross Shaquille O'Neal with Mad's most famous artist? Boy, you're just stumping me today, Bill. Shaq Davis. Shaq Davis. (laughs) Well done. Is that a groaner or what? Thank you. That was a real boner, Bill. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, boner's arc. Thank you. My favorite comic strip. And that I still don't get it. We we seldom get Alex's humor because, you know, but that leads us into what are your favorite stories of this era, guys? And I, I'm going to start with you, Alex. Please continue with what your favorite stories from this era are. All right. So mine are Wallywood stories. I love Wallywood. As far as EC Comics goes, he may be my very favorite, but... I'm not sure, because I do enjoy them all. Weird Science 18, 1953, Mars is Heaven, adapted by a 1948 Ray Bradbury story. It was adapted by Feldstein, and the art was Wally Wood. Mars was a hot topic, like Jim mentioned, with sci-fi. Everything was about Mars, even from its origins. Even in the second issue of the Fantastic Four, they describe how the Fantastic Four mission that got them their cosmic powers was them trying to go to Mars. So it's all about Mars. But what's interesting about this story is that they come up with a fun, psychologically interesting description of life on Mars as shape-shifting telepathic aliens that mimic the family members of Earth astronauts and seduce them into a false sense of utopia and then murder them all. And ever since I read Animal Farm as a kid, I found the false promise of Utopia ending up as a giant meat blender as an interesting premise to a story. So I love it. I love the 1950s sci-fi astronaut vibe. I love the Wallywood art. So I love everything about that story. Wow. Do you have more, Alex? (laughs) Whoever you are? Weird Science 22, 1953. That's called My World by Wally Wood, which is a compilation of science fiction panels of various sceneries, time, dinosaurs, futuristic societies, evil aliens, new curious alien creatures, ancient civilizations. So it feels like a visual personal manifesto from Wally Wood, who is one of EC Comics' top artists. His art was highly coveted. He himself loved the science fiction genre. Of course, we talked about how Harry Harrison and him helped bring science fiction to EC Comics. So this story is like his personal love letter to the sci-fi genre. And that last line with him at the drawing board saying, for my world is the world of science fiction conceived in my mind, placed upon paper with pencil and ink and brush and sweat and a great deal of love for my world. For I am a science fiction artist. My name is Wood. So it's just a really touching story and really touching ending. But to be clear, Wood could draw any genre. But at this moment in time, we can almost feel his love for the sci-fi genre. It speaks for itself so well here and leaves a beautiful impression. Well, I'm feeling the love, Alex. Thank you. And and that <laughs> brings me to Jim. I know you have some gems, as it were, G-E-M-S, and I'd like to know what they are. Okay, so my first pick would be Zero Hour, a Ray Bradbury story from Weird Fantasy 18, March, April 1953, based on the 1947 story. Jack Kamen just owns this story and he's not my favorite of of the weird science weird fantasy artist by any means but he's the perfect artist for this one it's about kids under 10 years old are playing a new game called invasion 
And they're all following the orders of this invisible Martian named Drill all across the country. All the kids in the backyard are building these weird devices made out of materials in their parents' kitchens. And there's this great panel where Mink goes back into the kitchen and says to her mom, I'll be sure you won't be hurt much, really. And mom says, well, thanks, honey. And the the way that, that Cayman captures that is so pedestrian and so normal. It's like watching this on Leave it to Beaver or something, except you know that the cleavers are going to get totally chopped up into pieces. The parents end up, when zero hour occurs, the parents end up hiding in the attic and the kids yelling, Mom, Dad, where are you? And then here's the, the line. It says, very heavy footsteps come up the stairs, Mink leading them. They trembled together in silence in the attic, Mr. and Mrs. Morris. They stood shivering in the dark silence. A little humming sound. The attic lock melted. The door opened. Mink peeked inside. Tall blue shadows behind her. And there's this picture of Mink, all smiles, with the blue fuzzy things behind her. And she's all innocent looking. And she says, peekaboo. It's so good for anybody that has kids. It's like we know how scary they are and they may kill us at some point or <laughs> put us in a in a home someday like I'm now doing. But, but anyway, <laughs> they, they it, it's really – I'm sorry. I'm going to laugh. It's really scary. And Cayman does this over and over in EC books where he makes these kids that look cute. And then there's another one he did in a horror book called 40 Wax where the kid – takes anybody, any kid that holds the axe that Lizzie Borden killed her family with, they just come after and start chopping up their parents with it. And Cayman does this over and over. And in this book, it's such a perfect assignment for him. My second one is really more about the story behind it than the actual story in the book. It's called A New Beginning, and it's in Weird Fantasy 22. It's a Williamson assignment, and it's it's a standard science fiction thing where a couple go back into the, the past, assigned to go back in the past because humanity has become so awful, and they're given all these giant machines, and they're supposed to build from these cloning machines a new race that's going to start back in time and replace whatever happens. So you'll have a whole different history and rewrite time with with these guys and instead the woman says i don't want to do it that way i i basically want to have sex let's just let the and the machines blow up and they go off and they have kids who breed with the cavemen and they they start a new race that way and and that's okay it's 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 a fine story what's really interesting about it is the inks, because Williamson was never an inker. He didn't like to ink at all. And he brought in, you know, like I had said earlier, Frazetta and Angelo Torres and all these guys and Crinkle. All these guys were doing his inks and Crinkle was doing the background scientific stuff and the villages and the weird things in the background. And it was really a team effort. And instead, Gaines assigns Bernie Krigstein, brand new, never done a story for EC, assigns him to do this. And he he does this, I think, a great job. But Williamson looks at it and he's horrified by it. And he he basically redraws the whole comic so that Frazetta can do it now and ink it. And I understand why, because it's sort of like if Gil Kane had always had P. Craig Russell doing his inks 
and suddenly Klaus Janssen is, is inked a story. It's that shocking in its, its difference. And so what's great is they didn't have time for him to do all of it. So there's a couple of pages there, like page seven or six, that's actually still the Krigstein inks. So you can see this tremendous difference in styles and how interesting it is. So it's one of the best efforts in terms of seeing what how an anchor matters in terms nice. of a story. So that's what I love about that one. Wonderful. Well, you know what? You guys had four fantastic stories, but guess what? I drew the long straw this week, so I got the best one. And that would, of course, be Judgment Day. Boom, boom, boom. Yes, my favorite, Joe Orlando, comes up with a story that is basically plucked right out of time. Of course, it was Weird Fantasy 15, 1953. And what happens is an astronaut from Earth goes to a robot planet called Cybernia to do like a quality check to make sure they're coming along in their evolution as a robot race. But then he is completely surprised, shocked, and mortified by the fact that different colored robots are treated differently. And then he goes back to his ship, takes off his helmet, and guess what? He's a sweating black guy. Whoa! Dun-dun-dun! Talk about your Twilight Zone endings. And Jim, you said earlier that EC ripped off radio. Well, I'm going to tell you, Rod Serling probably ripped off EC because so many of the Twilight Zone storylines and endings were very similar to uh, EC science fiction comics. Would you agree? And you can't just say sure. I mean, most of these stories, like I said, were coming from radio and from the pulp magazines and all of the short stories. So it's it's such a mix that I think they're an influence. I think they're more of, and maybe they're an influence for Serling. I don't know. I couldn't say because there's so much stuff out there at the time. But EC was doing it, and certainly that influenced filmmakers that came out in the late '60s. So it's 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 possible. I wouldn't say no. There are some panels, like in our friend Arlen Schumer's Twilight Zone book, it does show some faces that are ugly to our standards, telling this beautiful girl by our standards that she's the ugly one. And there was a Twilight Zone episode like that, where the beautiful woman was actually the horrid one in a world of ugly faces. And what's interesting is actually the faces kind of look similar to each other for between the comic and the show. So... There are some uh, thoughts that, yeah, there is a relationship between the two entities. I wouldn't be surprised. I just wouldn't say plagiarism. Right, right, right. You know what? I kind of would only because I'm going to go a little further, and I hope I don't, you know, appall any of the anti-Shumites that might be listening. But I saw Arlen's presentation on Twilight Zone at the uh, Texas Con when I brought him down here for our comic conference. He had some appalling, I mean, I'd go even further than what Alex is saying, and he had some downright ripoffs in panels of scenes from the Twilight Zone. So radio begat comics, comics begat TV, then TV begat comics, and it's a vicious circle, but it's one I think we all love. Am I right, guys? Yeah, a circle of jerks in a way, right, guys? 
Jim, my, can you my answer son that? is named after a Twilight Zone episode, so I own this. Well, yes, you do, and you also own the funeral company Willoughby. Am I right? Yeah, no one's going to know that reference, but yeah. I, I bet we have a lot of listeners out there that are going to remember that reference. I'm just we saying. We just might. Something about the Judgment Day story there, Bill, I just want to throw in. Orlando did draw it, and also Feldstein was the writer as well. So I do want Feldstein to get credit for that ending. Al, Eraserhead, Feldstein. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, he looks like a dead ringer for Eraserhead. I mean, come on. My my cousin is Lyle Lovett. I understand weird hairstyles, especially Eraserhead kind of hairstyles, as it might be. Is that a David Lynch reference? Yes, it is, as a matter of fact. With that guy Nance, Jack Nance or something? Jack Nance. Yeah, he was in every David Lynch movie up until the time he died in like 1999 or so. Isn't that interesting? Punched out after being insulted by a gang of guys at a donut shop and went home and with his injuries died in his sleep. It was really sad because he was a hell of an actor and he was great. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. But I have to get back because we're on a time crunch now because we're trying to be vigilant of time. Time vigilantes, as it were. Right, Jim? Time vigilantes. Good. And I would say, oh, one more thing is that Judgment Day was reprinted in 1956 in Incredible Science Fiction number 36, and it was changed. No circle jerk reference, Alex. I would say (laughs) that what happened was, basically, they not only didn't want the guy at the end to be a black guy, but they also didn't want him to be a sweating black guy. Now, what does that say about that era, Jim? Now, when you say they, though, you're talking about the comics code. So this was the comics code giving Bill Gaines a hard time, giving EC Comics a hard time. And so they just wanted to kind of filter Gaines and crack down. Comics code was like started by the guys over at National and Archie Comics who just hated Gaines for making fun and satirizing them in Mad Comics and things like that. They were trying to take out the experimental small business guy, the big corporation guys. And the comics code was just a rough-armed extension of that, and they were cracking down on gains, and they just used that as an excuse. So, But yeah, it was the comics code. So, Okay, I'm going to make this fast, but my second entry into this foray would be, of course, dun-dun-dun, Weird Fantasy number 19. That was 1953, of course, because that's what we're talking about, folks. And we're talking about Time for a Change, which if there's any EC comic that seemed like a Twilight Zone episode to me, it was this one. Basically, what happens in this story, guys, is that a small landing party lands on Pluto and they realize there are all these strange statues of dinosaurs, monsters, what have you. But they come back the next day and suddenly... The statues have slightly changed their position, like the monster might be blinking, the monster might be having a foot in the air, and then they come back the next day and, you know, it keeps going on like this. Sadly, they find out that they're caught in Pluto's strange time element, which means that one day is 246 years. Yes, 246 years, folks. That's crazy. And so what happens is, is that right as they realize this, they go into Pluto time 
and they don't have enough time to write a letter so the people that come and find them know that they're not corpses or statues. They're living, breathing humans on a different time scale. And so the last panel of the comic is the embalmer about to embalm, or the funeral director, about to embalm our hero who blinks, but unfortunately the embalmer doesn't notice. (laughs) Therein is the end of the story. And both of those were drawn by the wonderful Joe Orlando. And there you have it, folks. That's our favorite stories here on the Comic Historian Podcast. So now we go into section three of our psycho radio drama this week. In terms of American comics, I think we'd all agree nothing else is even close to EC quality. But sci-fi is about exploration, other worlds, and other formats. And with that in mind, I wanted to talk about one of my favorite characters of all time. And Jim, do you know who that would be? Astro Boy. Oh my god, and that means it's time for the Astro Boy theme song. Come on, sing along, folks. Okay, that's enough of that. But well done, Bill Payne in the Astro Boy field. Thank you very much. Hey, that's me. I'm never mind. Okay, so I do that on every episode, folks. So that's my never mind for this episode. If you're, you know, collecting the Marvel value stamps with me. So what I'd say about Astro Boy is Osama Tezuka is arguably both the Max Fleischer and the Walt Disney of Japan. And he came up with Astro Boy in 1952, but he really caught on in 1953 and became like the Mickey Mouse of Japan, more or less. And the the funny thing about this is, do you guys, I have to quiz you, but do you know what fairy tale Astro Boy is based on? Well, Pinocchio. Okay, Jim got in right under the bus. Well done, Jim. Thank you, Jim. And his father is basically a manic, evil Geppetto who had lost his son in a vehicle accident and tried to bring him back through a artificial uh, intelligence source. In fact, I have heard that the movie AI had an awful lot to credit to give to uh, Tezuka because they took a lot of Astro Boy and put it into AI. And if you watch it and you're familiar with Astro Boy or any Tezuka media, you'll know this is true. The funny thing about Tezuka is, and Jim, I'm sure you probably know this, Tezuka had a stable of characters, but those characters would go from one series to the other and be completely different characters. So they were essentially his actors. One character would be a good guy in one series and then be evil as hell in another. This is something that a lot of people have not done, and it it still amazes me that he got away with it without anybody really noticing too much. Have you ever noticed that, Jim? Yeah, I've seen, I I understand what you're talking about. (laughs) Thank you. And Alex, you don't know much about Tezuka, do you? I know a little bit. I read that first omnibus of Astro Boy, and I did enjoy it. It was a fun read. Well, okay. And see, that's my take on 1953 sci-fi, but Jap, 
Alpha Sci-Fi. I couldn't really do that, could I? I really tried to crunch that phrase, but I'm just I'm just not there tonight. I don't know what the deal is. So that lends us to Jim Thompson. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to move on to France in 1953. It's um, me- <laughs> I, I was hoping I was hoping you would do that. Thank you. So Meteor magazine, it's a small format publisher called Artima, and they they begin publishing the very first all science fiction comic in France. And they did it from 1953 to 1964. The reason it's significant is because without that, you might not ever have had heavy metal in France. This is the one that that inspired them in terms of publication and that you could do a science fiction mag there. So Were they, there any artists in common, Jim? Nope. Okay. Nope. They did a lot of, lots of series, but the, the most famous and popular one was called The Conquerors of Space, which was about three... U.S. space people working for the United Nations Space Agency, and they were exploring new worlds. It featured a space pilot, Dr. Spencer, and the navigator, Sam Spade, and the brash mechanic named Texas. And they rode around on a rocket called Space Girl, exploring new worlds and new civilizations. This was 13 years before Star Trek. Nice. And they had rules such as they could observe, but without interfering. So it's pretty interesting, actually, to read these books in terms of the Star Trek influence. There was 140 episodes altogether, 32 pages per month. They arrived on the moon right before, around the same time as Tintin did, with Hergé on, on Tintin on the moon. Not Mars, on the moon. So it's it's a fascinating series to read about in terms of that, and I'd recommend it. It really is is solid space opera, and it runs through 1964, like I said. So that would be the one that I, I find fascinating. Fantastic. And that leads us to Alex. And I'm, I'm a little surprised that you said nothing about them riding a rocket called Space Girl. I mean, I thought about it. I thought about how fitting that was and how it fits, if you know what I mean. Please, Alex, what's your 1953 entry? Well, I think the land of television, or a vast wasteland, as they called it then, the George Reeves Adventures of Superman TV show, that debuted in 53. It was produced much earlier, but because of technical delays, it came out in 1953. And superheroes were out of style, and sci-fi, comic, yeah, I think it does kind of count because of the Kryptonian origins, but it's still very much in the superhero genre. It was a huge hit. It pushed Superman into the spotlight just as Fawcett's Shazam! Captain Marvel was actually getting pushed out. There were these competing lawsuits between National, DC Comics, and Fawcett. It just wasn't profitable anymore for Fawcett to continue to use the Captain Marvel Shazam! character, so they stopped using it, and meanwhile Superman gets his own show and finally defeats Captain Marvel in battle. Holy moly! Holy moly, that's right. So the Big Red Cheese just died. And so this kept the DC Comics superhero line afloat while other genres were getting more readers. And even Wally Wood's Super Duper Man in Mad Comics 4, which is thought to have elevated Mad's readership and profitability, was made as a response to the Superman gaining such popularity at this time. And also to hopefully mimic Superman's success, Martin Goodman of Timely 
which was at that time Atlas Comics, revives his Golden Age superhero line with the Human Torch in Young Man 24 in 1953. And Goodman was hoping to make a show out of one of his Golden Age characters. And after Captain America and Submariner were brought back in 54, that all failed and none of that worked out. It's an interesting entry in 1953 because it really was the dominance of Superman over the other superheroes of the time. Well, and don't forget, Martin Goodman also tried to take advantage of the situation with a little character called Marvel Boy. Well done. That's true. Thank you. Yeah, good call. He became Quasar later on. Yes. And one of Jim's favorite characters of all time. I'm making that up, but Jim may surprise me and say, I loved Quasar. I but, loved uh, Quasar. No, Alex did, actually. I love Quasar. I love Mark Grunewald. You guys know that. I loved his TVs, Quasar. <laughs> well done. Okay, only people of a certain age will get that joke. But I'm next... of a certain age, Bill. I know you are, I... Jim. Grandpa Jim. Yeah, and, yeah. and are you listening, Renfield? Alex's granddad, but you know, and he drinks old granddad. But that again is another story altogether. But Renfield's sucking on bugs, Jim. I, I don't think you have much to worry about there. In the mental institution, granddad. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. I had to do my Renfield. You know, if if I have an opportunity to do a bad impersonation, I'm damn well going to do a bad impersonation. And guys, that brings me to... Dun, dun, dun. Yes, our weekly rants. And this week, we enjoy and appreciate and experience a whole new facet to our rants. Because Jim has said, yes, he's mandated that we go to 100-second rants. So this week we start with our rant 100, and I'm going to start with Jim. Jim, rant away. Okay, so this is probably going to come in under 100 seconds. I'm going to just simply make a recommendation that everybody who has enjoyed the Black Panther movie, who is over 18, should also go check out the musical score. Not the not the actual score, but the Black Panther theme music, which is done by Kendrick Lamar. It's a combination of rap, but done over sort of score music and African instruments and things. And it's, it's a fascinating bit. Once you get past maybe the first song or so, it's all about the struggle and perseverance and it's basically telling the same Black Panther story that's done in the film, only they're doing it in music. It's a really nice listen, but it's got a lot of bad other language. Does it really? My God. My word. It is not a Disney. It does not sound Disney. It's got the N-word. It has a lot of bitches in keeping with the form and the style of the music, but it's really sharp. I like it a lot. Not loving all of that. Oh, wait, those are my initials. Now, Jim, were you uh, blasting that in the car for your son, too? It is so bad, and I almost will will listen to anything in front of my son, and I, will, I, I can't actually listen to this. Because really? Wow. We played Song of Music. He used to listen to that all the time, uh-huh. and he started saying Heil Hitler at school. So we're careful about that kind of thing, <laughs> and so, so there's that. This week, I have a personal beef with my two compadres, and that's that they didn't want me to treat you guys to my new theme song for the show, which (laughs) may never air again after this. They thought it might be a little too country, 
I think it might be a little too rock and roll, but enough Donnie and Marie references. If I'm going to finish this in 100 seconds, I have to go now. From two guys in California and one in the Lone Star State, we'll do the best we can to make this podcast great. You'll hear our comic passion from the first minute to the last, right here on the Comic Book Historians Podcast. (laughs) Bravo, Bill. Bravo. Bravo. I am impressed. Now, Bill, I was expecting more F-bombs and N-words in your song. Alex. You know, from the stain in my pants, can you see our rants? Can you hear Jim say, hey, Bill, I don't agree. Okay, sorry. That doesn't even rhyme, but it was funny, to me at least. Please, Alex, by all means, can you rant? Something about the repeatability of storylines that I've I've noticed with the Marvel movies and with just the Marvel stories in general. I mean, that's just how it is. Of course, a lot of these characters were created in the same decade, so you have a lot of repeat stuff. So, you know, you have a lot of characters that go to Tibet and come back changed. You also have Iron Man and Doctor Strange as egotistical kind of rich guys who then get reinvented out in the East in some way and come back changed and reformed and transformed into a benevolent force. And I will argue that I feel the same that happened between Thor Ragnarok and the Black Panther movie. In both movies, you have the elder patriarch of both kingdoms hidden away a dirty family secret, a member of the family that is a dirty secret to hide. And in Thor Ragnarok, that was Hela. And in Black Panther, that was Killmonger. And when both elder patriarchs died, that then left the vacuum for the return of this dirty and forgotten family member to return and essentially just wreak havoc and destroy everything. And it took Thor and T'Challa in their respective storylines to then come back, defeat this force, and then become the kings of their kingdoms. And really, it's the same storyline. And I just want to throw it out that, hey, guys, it's the same story over and over again. Hashtag Black Panthers Matter. And with that, fellows, we end this week of the Comic Book Historian podcast. I have been so honored and so, I don't know, redeemed as a human being for being your host this week. It's been a wonderful one, and I have to say goodbye. Goodbye, Jim. Bye. Bye, Bill. See you, buddy. See you next week. And Alex? Are you kicking me off? (laughs) I'm kicking us all off, actually, and now I'm kicking Alex off. Alex? Give us a grand exit, will you? Hey, thank you, Boner Bill. You have a great week. I am Boner Bill. Thank you. And with I'm that, for another song. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Okay. Well, when I was a little bit of boy. Okay. With that, we are out of here. I am Bill Field, and we'll see you next time on the Comic Book Historian Podcast. Aloha. Thank you.